Today on Your Money, Your Wealth, we're getting back to investing basics with an army of smart fellows from Pure Financial Advisors and me, producer Andy Last. First, Matt Balderston, CFP, lays out what makes for a wise investing philosophy when you're on the market volatility roller coaster. Brian Perry, CFP, CFA, shares tips for avoiding people with bad financial intentions. And Joe Anderson, CFP, and Big Al Clopine, CPA, go over finding a financial fiduciary, drawing up a good investment policy statement, and figuring out the annual percentage rate on an IRS payment plan. Joe and Big Al also do some math, just a little, mind you, to figure out when a teacher should retire and what to do with her pension. And of course, the fellows throw in some Roth conversion talk, too. Here to kick things off for us are Big Al Clopine CPA and Matt Balderston CFP. Matt, I want to talk to you about investing in these crazy markets. And, and actually, markets are always crazy, Matt. It's, it's, it's hard they to are. think of when they're not crazy. Yeah, and, uh, I, and I think by definition, the truth is, I mean, you can go back to virtually any year, any decade, and there's all kinds of things that happen that you would say, man, you, you shouldn't necessarily be invested right now because of, and yet if you took that attitude, you would never get anywhere in your portfolio. Yeah, the analogy I like to use is if, if you got on a roller coaster and then when you got off, you were mad because it went up and down too much, then you didn't understand the ride. <laughs> that is a great <laughs> that analogy. Is, I've never heard yeah. anybody use that before. That's perfect. All right. I like that. How do you even know if you've got the right portfolio in the first place? Uh, there's so many different variables associated with that. Uh, a lot of the things that we like to do is look at how much do you need to draw from the portfolio. You know, if you're only drawing 1% or 2% or nothing from the portfolio, then in a sense, if you have heirs that you hope to pass it on to, you're investing for them. That's one really good way of looking at it, in which case you can think of a time horizon of 50 or 60 years, and then what does one year mean? What does one month mean? So you might be 85 years old, but if the money's for the kids, if yeah. it's for their inheritance, you're kind of looking more at their time frame than yours. Yeah. And so I actually have a lot of people that have more stock in their portfolio than you might think of based on their age. But I think age is one of the least important variables in determining a portfolio. It's what are you doing with the money? What are the draw rates? You know, How likely is it that that money will last even if it loses 25% in the short term? And if statistically you're, you've got a 98% chance of your money lasting Lasting, then why not take a little extra risk and build for your heirs? So let's talk about this. Maybe a, a 60-year-old individual. You might have two different 60-year-old individuals, and one um, might be very aggressive and one mm -hmm. might be conservative. And what are some of the considerations there that you might pick one portfolio over another? For the most part, it is draw rates. That's a huge part of it. So if someone does have a fairly small portfolio value relative to how much they're drawing, then I want to take on less risk because a short-term drop in the market could cause you to draw from those assets that aren't able to rebound. There's been plenty of studies done that showing that if you have a big drop in the market early in your retirement, you may not be able to recover from it if those ratios are a little too close, where another 60-year-old may be drawing only a little bit because they have pensions or just don't have that expensive a lifestyle, in which case they can afford tremendous volatility. Yeah. So it's, uh, I'm reading between the lines. It sounds like you're, you're creating your portfolio based upon your own goals. And some people are, they only need about 1% withdrawal rate from their portfolio. Some people don't need anything. Right. Others might need 4% or even a little bit more. Depending upon what your needs are and goals are is going to determine what type of uh, investment strategy, what sort of allocations. And why don't we talk a little bit about that in terms of how you start to think about allocating your portfolio? 
Okay. Well, you know, the first step is stocks versus bonds. Most people are aware of at least that division of, of how a portfolio works. Uh, and the more aggressive you are, the more willing you are or able you are to take on that volatility that the market gives us, uh, the more stocks you would have in your portfolio. Once you have determined that, then you can actually start splitting up both the stock and bond components into smaller pieces because there are different types of stocks and different types of bonds. There are small companies versus large companies. There's international companies versus domestic companies. There are value companies versus growth companies, etc. And so uh, each one has its own characteristics and you wanna put those together in such a way that it provides you with a rate of return relative to the risk you're willing to take. Got it, okay, well stocks uh, are more risky than bonds. Absolutely. But they're more volatile, that right? They are, so, yes. so if you only need a two percent rate of return, then just invest in bonds, and then you got a nice, safe ride. Yeah, you right? do. You do. I tend to uh, push people a little beyond that. I joke a bit about with my clients that I look at their money like I look at my kids. I hate to see wasted potential. But true. Uh, <laughs> a, man, you're just full of yeah. things. <laughs> so, um, Maybe but, we should get rid of Joe. Yeah. This is well, no, those are the only two I have. So, oh, okay. okay. I've, I've, I've used them up. used them up. Well, you could use them every show. Oh, yeah. Because my memory's not that great. Oh, okay. So it'd be brand new. <laughs> So, but yeah, the point is, is that if you don't need to draw from the money, I hate to see people, you know, just getting a two percent if they actually could afford five or six percent. And risk tolerance has something to do with it. If you're the kind of person that seeing it drop one percent, you're going to be on the phone instantly. Then maybe we do need to leave you in bonds. But yeah, you know, that's also part of my job is to help talk people through that and ultimately get them used to that volatility and again accept it. As I said before, because that. Even when young people come in, kids of our clients, I tell them the first, most important thing they can get out of meeting with me is accepting the ups and downs of the market and not worrying about them. So let's get into some of the stock categories. Yes. Domestic versus international. Which is better or why do you need one versus the other or should you have both? I don't necessarily consider one better than the other. I think all asset classes are important parts of an overall portfolio. International, though, um, because that means countries other than the U.S., there are additional risks in investing in them. There's political risk, there's uh, currency risk, conversion risk, that kind of thing. So I do tend to try to weight a little more of clients' portfolios toward the U.S., since that's the country we happen to live so, in. But why have any international? Well, like any asset classes, they perform differently under different circumstances. There are years where international dramatically outperforms the U.S. and vice versa. And so Gambling on which one is going to be better from one year to another is dangerous uh, and would actually increase the volatility where if you have some of both, they tend to balance each other out and you'll get the best of both worlds and you know, you'll, you'll accept the, the bad years of both worlds as well. Yeah, and what's interesting is sometimes they kind of move in tandem and other times they're actually fairly far apart. Yeah. I mean, you can go back to 2000 to 2010. That's, we call that the last decade. Right. Because the S&P 500 actually went down about 9% over a 10-year period. Yeah, first time that had ever happened. Right. That, in other words, you couldn't make any money. But yet international stocks, it, it was a completely different experience. It was. And in general, you know, some of the data that we have and a, a mix of 60% stocks, 40% bonds, and the exact mix would have some effect on this. You know, you probably got 60, 70% growth over those 10 years where the S&P 500 by itself was down nine, like you said. Small versus growth. Yeah. Small or versus large. I will get there. Yep. Small, <laughs> small versus large. Thank you. Yeah. So small companies versus large companies. You know, smaller companies tend to be riskier because they have a, a lot more 
if the forces working against them are a little harder, they can't overwhelm, you know, problems with money, they are riskier. But boy, when the good ones hit, you can make a fortune off of them. Larger companies are a lot more stable. Uh, they're still stock, so they still do move dramatically. But the two categories don't move exactly the same. I mean, small company stocks, historically, after nearly a century worth of, of academic research, have shown to have a premium. They do tend to perform better over the long term. And not necessarily year in, year out, though. Absolutely not. It's actually kind of interesting that it's almost a coin flip, which does better on an annual basis. But once you start projecting out to 5, 10, or 15-year windows, you get to the point where small will win you know, 80-plus percent of the time. And if you're designing a portfolio that has the best odds of a, of a client making the most money, adding a little bit extra small cap stock to your portfolio has a high probability of providing that. So I think small versus large, that's easy to conceptualize. Smaller company, larger company. Yep. Value versus growth is a little bit more tricky. Yeah, this one I always have to spend a little extra time on with people. I, hopefully most people have heard the terms value and growth, but it's based to a degree on how much the stock is worth compared to how much all of the company's assets are worth, their inventory, their buildings, their intellectual capital, all those other kind of things. If the stock value is very close to that underlying value of the company, that means that not a lot of profit has been priced in. All that the stock is pricing in is those underlying assets. That's a value stock. Nobody thinks it's going to make money, but at least you could break it up for the pieces. A growth stock has a tremendous, you know, much higher value of the stock relative to the underlying assets because people are pricing in future profits and they think that those companies will be extremely profitable. Well, value companies, if they don't write the ship, those could go away. So there's extra risk associated there. But boy, if they do write the ship, there's enormous upside potential there. And historically, value has done much better than growth. Now, you don't invest in two value stocks because they could go away. But if you invest in a thousand of them, it's okay if a few go away because the ones that come back will help to outperform the growth. Statistically, again, over that almost a century worth of data, that's been the case. And I think that's well said because investing needs to be long-term. And smaller companies and value companies, we really haven't seen some of those premiums in the last few years. It doesn't mean that doesn't work. It just means there's been a period of time where the growth stocks and the larger company stocks have done a little bit better. But that's not to say it's not going to turn around at some point. Right. No, it's certainly not unprecedented. Back in the 90s, uh, there was a whole period of time where people, you know, there were huge value managers that just quit the business because they went through a long period where value was out of favor. And then when the tech bubble burst in, in 2000, value came roaring back and just destroyed the growth numbers and supported that long-term average of value outperforming growth. So it'd be nice if you knew when that was going to happen. Oh boy. Yeah. I just <laughs> that uh, get the crystal ball out and, and, and figure that out. Yeah. That would be wonderful. We just, we don't know, it's but we have faith that it will. When Matt said about value managers getting out of the business, I was thinking they're actually market timing their careers. Yeah. Right. Based, That's, yeah. Right, sure. And they did uh -huh. just when the pain got right, the exactly. hardest, right. they left and they missed out on the, on the profit. And that's right. often how investing works. It's when things feel like you've made the wrong decision that you finally give up 
that it finally turns around and right. goes the other way. And again, and I keep using this number. It's actually more like 90 years of academic data to be more accurate. But that gives us some pretty good support that these are very valid and reasonable ways to create portfolios. So over the long term, smaller companies tend to outperform. Value companies tend to outperform. Mm -hmm. So then why don't you just go all in? That is a great question. And even though these things do outperform over the long term, they don't necessarily outperform over the short term. And even over extended period of time, you know, nothing is guaranteed in investing. I mean, you, we have statistics to this effect, and the numbers I had in my office are a couple years old, but a couple years won't really change the numbers too much. But for example, stocks outperform bonds 69% of the time when you look at single years. Most people would probably be surprised by that because we talk about how much stocks outperform. But if you look at 15-year windows, stocks outperform bonds 95% of the time. But I didn't say 100. You're right. So you, <laughs> you know? could go 15 years where, where bonds would outperform stocks. Yep. And so that's a low probability. And we're not saying that they outperform by enormous amounts. But that's why you diversify. Because if we go through one of those periods, as unlikely as it is, where bonds outperform stocks, we don't want to have put all of our money in stocks and lost out. You know, Our clients will not be damaged by any reasonable measure by being in that wrong asset class. The discrepancy is a lot bigger when you get to value and small cap. So value stocks outperform 60% of the time annually from a year-to-year -year basis, sure. but 95% of the time over 15 years again. So being more in value still makes a lot of sense, but short-term, also if you're drawing from your accounts in retirement, if you're in one of those windows and all you have is value, you could, oh my gosh, I, I don't even want to imagine the <laughs> impact of that. Yeah, so I mean, just think about that. Your, your portfolio is tanking and you're pulling money out at yeah. the same time. Yeah, and so you don't want, obviously don't want that to happen. And then small company stocks, it's almost a coin flip. About 57% of the time, small outperforms large on an annual basis. And over 15 years, small outperforms 82% of the time. So we've got a much smaller number there. So now that's another reason why we don't go. And a, a phrase we use all the time is we tilt our portfolios toward these asset classes. If we are going to change our portfolios and make them somewhat different than what the market would otherwise provide you naturally, we want to tilt toward those things that give our clients higher odds of a higher rate of return without providing so much risk that that will jeopardize their goals if we end up in one of those longer windows where they don't outperform. I think that's well said. So you, you figure out what rate of return you need based mm -hmm. upon your own goals. And then you kind of work backwards to figure out, all right, how much stocks versus bonds to get this rate of return. And then it's not necessarily the broad world stock market. You're going to make slight tilts to smaller companies mm -hmm. and value companies so right. that you can get a little bit higher rate of return. And maybe that allows you to actually have less stocks as a whole and have more bonds and more safety. That's particularly important when you're withdrawing the money in retirement. Yeah, no, that's actually, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of bringing that up today, is that if you take the risk where you're rewarded for it, which is in the stocks, in the small companies and value companies, you can keep the foundation that much more secure, which is the bond portion. We like to keep our the bonds in our portfolio relatively short term so that they don't have as big of a reaction to changes in interest rates. With Boy, if you're a radio listener, you can't miss the fact that interest rates have been an issue the last couple of years. Sure. 
So by having shorter term bonds, you have less volatility on the bond side, which allows you because longer term bonds don't really provide an enormous amount of additional return for the extra risk you're taking on, where stocks do give you the higher return for the extra risk. So by taking the risk on the stock side, the extra risk, you have better chance of getting more reward than on the, on the bond side. So the bonds, we try to keep even more safe than normal. We keep them short term. So then you need to fill these asset classes, mm -hmm. and, and maybe there's 12 to 16 different asset classes, depending upon how you look at it. How do you fill them? I mean, you could buy individual stocks. You can buy actively traded mutual funds where fund managers are trying to pick the best investments. You could go index funds, mm -hmm. ETFs, pros and cons. What would you say? Well, our philosophy is to stay as broadly diversified as possible. And the best way to do that is to be in mutual funds or ETFs. Individual stocks add additional risk without any actual significant difference in the long-term expected return. You just end up with much broader range of highs and lows with individual stocks, but the expected average is about the same. So if you can chop off those two crazy upside and downside tails, mutual funds provide you a much more stable ride over the long term, I believe, yeah, statistically. Because anyway. you have 500 or 1,000 stocks yeah. within a single investment instead of one. Correct, correct. So there are different types of mutual funds and exchange-traded funds. You mentioned index funds, which are tied to some kind of list of stocks or bonds that some third party has come up with. And index fund managers have to keep the holdings in that mutual fund exactly at what the index says it should be. So there's not a lot of flexibility. And then the index providers will change that occasionally. And then every company in the world that has an index based on that has to buy and sell the changes on the same day. And there's a lot of inefficiency there. They're also actively managed holding ETFs and mutual funds where you have teams of people researching every stock all the time, looking at management changes and future profitability. And there's a lot of expense in that manpower. And those kind of expenses have to be paid from somewhere. And that comes out of the mutual fund. So we tend not to prefer to go after that because there's minimal academic evidence that that kind of research really translates into extra performance. Yeah. And it's interesting when you look at the academic studies, what tends to happen over the long term is those funds earn the market rate return minus those costs. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you're just kind of giving that up. And then, so what we try to do is something somewhat in the middle by using more asset class-based funds. So the funds tend to have a specific asset class within them. All the stocks in them have to do with a certain asset class, but the fund companies that manage them don't tie themselves to an index. But they also aren't actively following what those stocks are doing. It really is just based on trying to own every stock that's within that asset class with some you know, minor deviations. And so that keeps costs low because you're just buying the stocks that are in that asset class while not tying yourself to the inefficiencies of an index telling you when to buy and sell things. Uh, and their institutional funds is usually they fall under that category. And so that tends to be our preference. So I've got one other question I've got to ask you. Yeah which is a globally diversified portfolio. And different asset classes tend to go up and down at different points. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the benefits of a globally diversified portfolio, as you just mentioned, is it stays within a little bit tighter band than if you just bought like a, a single stock, right. which could be really good or really bad. Yeah. And part of a benefit of a globally diversified portfolio is you 
hope to get some downside protection. When the market goes down, you're not necessarily going to participate in that, but that's not necessarily always the case. You are correct. Uh, last year was one of those situations, at least uh, in our case, because all of these tilts that we have in our portfolio happen to all be out of favor at the same time. Uh, we hadn't experienced that in the 11 plus years we've been here, but statistically it will happen occasionally. Uh, so there wasn't as much downside protection as we might have thought. But we've also had years where a balanced portfolio actually outperformed stock indexes because the tilts did work. And so if you look at the last 10 years, which I'm fortunate enough to have some evidence of, you still end up in about the range that you expect, you know, between stocks and bonds. But on individual years, it, it can the, the range can be a little different. So I, I guess maybe another way to say this is that there's no guarantees in, <laughs> in investing. Never in investing. I mean, it, yeah. it's all about increasing your probabilities. Yes, that's definitely how I like to describe it. Man, great information, Matt. In times of financial uncertainty, which is basically always, it's good to have a reminder handy to help you avoid common investing pitfalls. We happen to have such a reminder available for you to download for free. Just click the link in the episode description in your podcast app. Keep a copy of nine investment pitfalls all investors should avoid on your phone. Print it out and stick it to the fridge. Commit it to memory and chant it when you feel like calling your advisor and telling him or her to move your entire portfolio to cash. Nine investment pitfalls all investors should avoid. Download it at the link in your podcast app or go to the show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Now, sticking to the theme of investing basics, let's answer some questions about the fundamentals of getting started managing your personal finances. If you've got a money question, whether basic or advanced, go to yourmoneyyourwealth.com and scroll down to Ask Joe and Al on air to send it in as a voice message or an email and get it answered right here on YMYW. Let's go with um, Chaz. With Chance. Chance. Chance from Utah. He goes, first off, <laughs> I want to say you guys are great. Yeah, thank you, Chaz. Chance. Chance. I like Chaz, too. Yeah, Chaz is a good name. Chance. Chance. Joe is changing your name, Chance. That's that's a cool name. I like Chance. Um, Got to take chances. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> you, you make financial literacy enjoyable. Well, look at that, Alan. I could make a long-winded request that would eat up months worth <laughs> of airtime. Instead, could you tell me how to find a true financial fiduciary I've done my due diligence in sitting, uh, setting up a financial plan, but I do not want to fall into an unavoidable pitfall. All right. So here's how you find a fiduciary. You want to find a, a fiduciary that is 100% of the time acting as a fiduciary. So what that means is that someone might say that they're a fiduciary for part of the conversation that they're having with you. Because they're what's known as a hybrid. Yes. Hybrid firm that does uh, commission products as well as being a fiduciary. Um, I would go to NAPFA. That's the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors. NAPFA. Uh, that is the fee-only network of financial advisors. You can find them there. Um, I would. That, that's a pretty good start. Then you can um, plug in Utah. And or where you live in Utah, and say, all right, well, here th these people are kind of close to me. Um, um, he's twenty nine, lives in Utah. Say, all right, well, you know, what's your familiarity with helping people with accumulation? This is my situation, and you can find someone that you know maybe specializes in what you're trying to accomplish. Another uh, good source is XYPN uh, or XY Planning Network. You could go on that. XY Planning Network, 
and again, plug in Utah, and then there will be a list of like individual, it's usually small practices, individual advisors. They might charge by the hour. Uh, they could charge you know, a percentage of assets or wh- whatever that you're looking for. Uh, but those are two um, resources that you could look at. I would highly suggest that you, when you, if you hire an advisor, you look to make sure that they act as a fiduciary in writing and ask them to put that in writing and both of you sign off on it. Um, you know, that, that's, those are two good resources that I would look at. You can look at the CFP board, um, but some of the, you know, CFPs act as a fiduciary, but they might still sell you product. Um, so there's all sorts of, you know, hopefully that's a good start. If that doesn't help you chance, then you just give us a call back and we'll help you out some more. We got a bunch of questions from the podcast survey and Gray HK asked this question. How does a savings slash investing enthusiast avoid the landmines of people with bad intentions? High fee base, high transaction based commissions, high loads, Ponzi schemes, fake charities, and paying for just receiving plain bad financial advice. What are the correct filters to be using? So that's, that's an excellent question, loaded question. I think we can take that a lot of directions, but uh, Brian, why don't you get us started? Yeah, and you're right. There's a lot of different ways to go with that. I think at the most basic level, it's if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. I mean, common sense, but a lot of times people, if you think of every get-rich scheme almost in history, a lot of times if you really look at it and somebody's promising you very high returns with very little risk, maybe you want to think twice about it. Right. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and so... You know, but it's it's sometimes hard for people when they go to different advisors, and, and it's like a lot of advisors kind of say the same thing, even though they might be pretty different. So maybe why don't we talk about different kinds of advisors? I, I mean, there, there are advisors that are fiduciaries, and there are advisors that uh, operate under a different standard called the suitability standard. So why don't you get us up to speed on that? Yeah, and that's really important is that fiduciaries are legally obligated to act in their client's best interest. Somebody operating under a suitability standard doesn't have that same obligation. If they have comparable products and one of them pays a higher commission, they're free to sell the product with a higher commission. Um, Now, this is my personal opinion, but when I look at retirement planning or any financial planning, it's really difficult. I mean, when you think about all the things that are unknown about the future from investment returns to inflation to taxes, it's very hard to achieve financial success. And it's even more difficult if the person that's working with you doesn't have your best interest in mind. So when I look at it, I I think that it makes all the sense in the world to work with a fiduciary. Now, obviously, at Pure Financial, we're fiduciaries, um, but I don't think that that's self-serving because there's lots of fiduciaries out there. And I think that there are enough of them that almost every listener should be able to find somebody that's legally obligated to act in their best interest to help them meet their financial goals. So fiduciary means that the advisor has to give advice that's in the client's best interest, at least to the best of their knowledge and ability. Right now, the other kind of advisor is under this suitability standard. So what does that mean? Yeah, so that means that a product needs to be broadly suitable for a class of people. So for instance, I don't know, mutual funds are broadly suitable for people planning for retirement. If I'm working under that standard, I can then pick a mutual fund that has a what's known as a load or a commission to sell. Right? Most mutual funds don't charge an upfront sales fee. Some do. So if I'm working under that standard, I have all the freedom in the world to sell a mutual fund that charges a commission that then goes in my pocket. So you, so there may be multiple uh, mutual funds that invest in large company stocks in the U.S., for example, which, which might be like an S&P 500 index type fund. And so the advisor under the suitability standard, if that's what's called for in the portfolio, could say, all right, we can fill that piece with this low-cost index fund. 
or I've got this other fund that uh, may have high commissions and may be paying me something up, up front. Yeah, and the problem is, is that they don't always have to disclose all of that, right? And so they can just say, hey, I think this is the best for you and position that. And in a lot of products, there aren't any implicit commissions. So for instance, if you think about buying individual bonds, the average markup for an investor on an individual municipal bond, according to the Federal Reserve a couple years ago, was about 1.7% to buy $10,000 worth of bonds. That was in an environment where a municipal bond might only be returning 2%. So you're giving up almost an entire year's return in fees to the broker. And yet the broker is free to say that there are no commissions attached to that product because technically it's not a commission. It's a markup. And so you see all these people, and I've met thousands of them over the course of my career that say, oh, yeah, I have a bond portfolio, but I don't pay any commissions. And then you look, and they've actually paid above and beyond what fair market value was, hundreds or even thousands of dollars in these markups. Yeah, so for an individual consumer, then probably one of the things they, they want to ask a potential advisor is, are you a fiduciary? Right, and the answer is yes or no. And another good follow-up question is, how do you get paid? And I think that helps answer that question. If, if a fiduciary generally gets paid directly from the client, and that's the only source, uh, a person under the suitability standard might get paid through a commission or some other sort of arrangement. But it gets a little tricky sometimes because some advisors are both. They're what we call hybrid. So if you might ask them that question, are you a fiduciary? They might say yes, even though they might also be selling products. So any words of caution there? Uh, yeah, be cautious. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I suppose that's... Right. I mean, it's tough because sometimes they can switch hats, right? So those individuals actually have a couple different hats they can wear, and they don't always necessarily make it clear when they're switching from one hat to the other. And so I think going with somebody that's fee-only as opposed to fee-based is sometimes important uh, terminology. Fee-only means that there are no commissions charged. So what about Ponzi schemes? How do we avoid Ponzi schemes? You know, a couple things. I mean, one would be if it's too good to be true, right? And if you think about Bernie Madoff is probably the most famous Ponzi scheme there was. And uh, the problem there was that the returns were too good and too consistent. And Bernie Madoff was a well-known person on Wall Street, well-respected, had a lot of high-profile individuals who maybe didn't look under the hood to the degree that they should have, and they wound up getting taken. And so a lot of times if returns are too consistent or too good or too guaranteed, that might be a sign. Um, but one important thing that you should always do is make sure that the person giving you financial advice and the person holding your assets are not the same. And that refers to a custodian. A custodian is per basically the person that holds your investments. Think about them like the supermarket, right? And then somebody can give you advice on your investments but the assets aren't held there, and that prevents a Bernie Madoff type situation because the person giving your advice can tell you what the portfolio is worth, but then you have the ability to independently go out and double check that by going to the custodian and seeing what they are valuing the securities at. Yeah, to me, that's such a key point because Bernie Madoff, in effect, through his companies, was both the advisor and the custodian. So in other words, he had, the, he had your money. And he also had the advisors. And so he was able to essentially control what your rates of return were without an independent third party. That's one of the, the best things that a custodian does. It's an independent third party that's going to report on what's going on in the portfolio. And so if the advisor wants to do their own reporting and it's different, it's like, well, what, what's up? Why is that different? Yeah. So at any rate, yeah, I think that's uh, 
something to, to be aware of. I got a question. So if you're trying to navigate this landmine, as Gray HK says, um, how do you find somebody that is fee-only? How do you find somebody that is a fiduciary? Is there a single source where you can find those person, that person? Well, it's, it's, it's a good question. You may have uh, a CPA that can, can refer you to somebody. You may go to a, a site like NAPFA, N-A-P-F-A.org. Joe is, can say what that stands for, I sort of forget, but uh, that has to do with, um, with fee-only advisors are allowed to join that. Um, there, I know there's other websites. I know Joe has answered that on other podcasts. Uh, but anyway, NAPFA is the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors. All right. So there you go. There you go. Perfect. But I think in, in a lot of cases, it's just when you, when you see someone that you really think you might want to engage, it's asking them some questions uh, on what kind of advisor. Are you a fiduciary? Will you put that in writing? And how do you get compensated? I think that will answer a lot of stuff just right there. Yep. And I'll throw in one more, too, is check for somebody that's a certified financial planner or a CFP designee or that has some sort of credentials. And there are lots of credentials in the financial industry. But if somebody has a certified financial planner designation, it shows that, A, they've taken a lot of effort to learn and hone their craft, but also they're held to a fiduciary standard through their certified financial planner board. All right. The one other thing that uh, Gray HK asked about was fake charities. Do we actually know what he's referring to there? Yeah, what, what he's referring to, particularly in times when there's, there's some kind of disaster, like let's say an earthquake somewhere or a hurricane somewhere, and legitimate charities are trying to get donations, and then fake charities or, or individuals, probably is another way to say that, pose as charities, and they start calling people and trying to get you to, oh, wow. to, to send money to them. And that is, that's, a, that's a tricky thing, and, and because a lot of people get, you know, they get taken by that. And, and I think one of the best things that you can do there is maybe just contact the charities that you know. You, maybe you've heard them on the radio that they have this certain drive and so forth, but maybe contact them directly instead of someone that says they are them. There's also an organization called CharityNavigator.org, and they will give you the stats on charities to tell you whether or not they're legit, how they handle their money, all that sort of thing. It's actually a pretty common issue when there's, there's a disaster, so just be aware of that. Um. Oh, let's let's play Jeff from somewhere. Reading. Reading. Hi, Andy. This is Jeff from Reading, California, calling. I um, love listening to your podcast and everything. Uh, a suggestion as a topic: Could you and your uh, two associates go in in depth on what a good investment policy statement is in the personal finance world? I know with mutual funds, they have a financial policy statement like what the mutual fund is going to do but i've never ever heard it covered on any podcast and i'd like to hear somebody really covered in depth the only time i've ever seen any literature was a book i read a long time ago i actually copied it and i was looking at it the other day and i just want to let you know that you do a great job with the podcast and keeping it on track and moving forward and everything so thank you for taking my message bye-bye wow Big, yeah, big and, fan of Andy. And, yeah, right. we're just two associates. Yeah, we associates. We, we didn't <laughs> even get names. I know and those two <laughs> schmucks that answer all the questions. There's that mellow one and that aggressive one. I don't even remember what their names are. <laughs> anyway, I guess we're talking about an investment policy statement. Yeah. We, we we call internally we call that an IPS. Just just did he say financial policy statement? He said investment, investment policy. policy. Oh, he did IPS. Okay. Yeah, IPS for the personal finance world is right. what, what he asked. Yeah, he, he read it in a book long and he copied it. Yeah. What the hell are you doing? 
<laughs> so how would you start that? <laughs> Go for it. All right. So I would, I would say this. An investment policy statement is how you are going to invest your assets to achieve whatever goal you set out to achieve. And, and I guess the way we think of it is when we, when we meet with a client, we do a lot of financial planning and tax planning to figure out what rate of return does a, does a individual or a couple need to be able to achieve their goals. So we do that first. And, and so then we ha- you could call that a family index or you could call that a rate of return or whatever it may be. And then you sort of work backwards and, and think of how do you design a portfolio to achieve that rate of return that's the safest possible, right? And so usually stocks earn more, have more growth potential than bonds, uh, but they're more volatile, right? So, so you kind of figure out the stock and bond mix. So that's part of your investment policy statement is to figure out what the, what the mix should be. Then when you should trade, like in other words, when it gets out of balance, when stocks go up more than bonds, you might want to sell some stocks to get back to bonds. That's, that's, you know, that's reallocation. Rebalancing, but, but I guess a, a broader stroke on this is that you want to make sure that you have a written, organized process on how you're going to manage the money, right? In any in circumstance, right? Because emotions come into play when markets get volatile, as we've seen. Yeah, and so you want to make sure that you have a process of looking at, like with us as an investment advisor, we have um, certain boundaries. We're like, okay, well, this is the role of the advisor. This is the role of the custodian. Right, so we want to make sure that that is clearly defined of who's responsible for what, yeah. who's responsible for reporting, who's responsible for this and that. So it's clearly defined on both parties on who's doing what. Yeah, and then you have a certain <clears throat> discipline that you stick with it. And here, here's the biggest problem that individuals have is we're emotional. And we tend to buy when things are high because it seems like the market's doing well and we sell when we get scared when it's down. So what have we done? We bought high and sold low. It's not a good recipe. Investment policy statement will sort of tell you, remind you, when you should be buying and selling and how you should be rebalancing and tax loss harvesting and all this stuff. And it's done prior to any of the collapse or the boom of any type of market. You have that process in place. So then you follow that discipline, and you will be a better investor. And this so. is something that you actually do with your financial advisor, and both parties sign off. Is that my understanding? Yeah, or you make your own investment policy if you, statement if you, if you for you your, do it yourself. Yeah, if you're investing for yourself, I encourage you to do that as well. So we've covered how to find a fiduciary, how to avoid the cheaters and the scammers, what makes a good investment policy statement, and what makes for a sound investing philosophy. If you're a regular YMYW listener, you probably know all of this, but Take a second and think now. Who do you know that really needs a basic primer on investing or who makes avoidable money mistakes? More financial literacy helps us all. So do them and all of the rest of us a favor. Go to the description of this episode in your podcast app, copy the show notes link you see there, and send it to those people. It contains the podcast episode, the transcript of the episode, and a bunch of free financial resources. Pass it on in an email or share it on social media and help make the world a little bit more financially wise. We got Rob in Santa Clarita. That's where um, our buddy, what's his name? Every time I say that name. Mir Statman. Yeah, Mir Statman. There it is. Now That's I, right. Now I know every time because <laughs> Rob emails us quite frequently. So. Um, answered the podcast survey and had some questions. He actually uh, had three different questions All right. and some suggestions. So. So, sounds good. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate that. What are some strategies for someone who has a pension so can't contribute to a traditional tax-deferred IRA? Makes too much to put into a Roth. I don't know. Should I keep putting money into ETFs and mutual funds and use long-term equity tax strategy? Though the tax logs could change on this. 
So, all right, Rob, if you've been listening to our program for any length of time, if you have a pension, you could still contribute to an IRA. Yeah, you can't necessarily take a deduction, which is, he called it a tax-deferred IRA, which actually didn't say tax-deductible. Yeah, you can. Anyone that has earned income can contribute to an IRA, as long as they're under 70 and a half. Right. Do you think he meant to say tax-deductible IRA? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. So you could put it into an IRA, and you could convert it to a Roth. Yeah, so that's called a backdoor Roth, and the, and the best practice there is if you don't have any other IRAs, then you can do that. You can put $6,000 into an IRA, and then you can immediately convert it. Or if you're 50 and older, you can put 7000 into an IRA and convert it. If you have other IRAs, then it gets much more complicated, and it's not as great a benefit. So what, what do you think he's saying here? I could just keep putting money into ETFs, mutual funds, and use long-term equity tax strategy. Well, I think the first— The, the, the tax laws could change, though. They could. I mean, so he could— he What's, could, what ta- I mean, what is he saying? Like the capital gains rate, do you think, is going to go I up or something? So. I think so. I think he's saying he could put money into a non-qualified or non-retirement like account. account. And a long-term equity tax strategy, you know, I don't know. Is he talking about tax last harvesting? Is, I, I'm not sure what he's talking about, though the tax laws could change on this. I guess in my entire career, which is now fairly lengthy, <laughs> being that I started as a CPA in uh, 1984. <laughs> you do the math. <laughs> so uh, there's always been capital gains, although there was a period of time uh, under George Bush Sr., uh, where the capital gain rates, it was, it was, they still had capital gains, but the rates was the same as the ordinary rate because he brought the maximum rate down to 28%. That didn't last very long, but you, you may remember uh, when he was challenged about that and the country was not bringing in enough, enough tax revenue, and he said, read my lips, no new taxes, and lo and behold, he did raise the taxes. Uh, and consequently, he the one and done. did not get uh, reelected. Re-elected. Yeah. But uh, anyway, I guess I, I'm not expecting capital gains uh, rates and, and preferential treatment to ever go away. Read my lips. Remember that? I do. You were a little kid. I was a child. I was barely on a <laughs> crib. <laughs> what year was that? Oh boy, that was uh, that would late eighties, early nineties. That exactly because yeah. that would have been Reagan. Reagan was eighty to eighty-eight. Yeah. So Bush was eighty-nine to, to nineteen eighty-eight is yeah. when he said it. Yeah. Yep. I was just a very young lad. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, Rob's got another question. We got okay. a couple minutes here. Okay. <clears throat> Let's see, which is uh, easier question um, to answer? <laughs> well, one's for you and one's for me. Uh, I know, but let's see. We got three minutes, Al. I'm going to give it to you. Okay. <laughs> I have an IRS payment uh, plan going on, a divorce and some written off debts. Long story. <laughs> well, th- those are the stories that's, I want to hear, That's Rob. what we want. <laughs> that's it. It was like I was married, and then this happened. I walked in, and she was doing this, and boom. Or, that's she, or the, she walked in. Yeah. Oh, whatever. Yeah. Let's see? Let's get some juice, Rob. <laughs> what goes on up there in Santa Clarita with you and Mir Statman doing some stats? Um, he pays 450 bucks a month, and it goes down by $100, and my current balance is about $17,500. He's trying to figure out the APR to see if it makes sense to get a loan from Ally Bank or Marcus or something like that. Um, 
the breakdown on penalties and interest is confusing. I looked online and there's no backwards way to find this out. Well, because he's missing another variable, Rob. We need to know the payment and the time frame and the balance. Then you could solve for what interest rate that you're paying. Well, we have we have the balance, and we've got the payment for fifty a month. Mm-hmm. And he's telling us that the I'm assuming this means the principal goes down by a hundred bucks. So if I read this right, he's saying the interest is three hundred fifty dollars a month, <laughs> which is not realistic. No, well, no, so, do so three, yeah, do three fifty a so, month times twelve divided into seventeen five. So I already did. It's twenty four percent. Yeah, it's that's not the right. IRS wouldn't charge. What I mean, no. what are the IRS well, that's, interest rates? That, that's how I wanted to answer the question. Yeah. So the IRS charges three um, percent for interest, and they charge five per, uh, uh, half a percent per month. For late payments, so that works out to six percent. So three plus six is nine percent. That's typically what they charge, unless there's in other types of penalties. Maybe there's other types of penalties. I don't know, but those are the typical ones. So nine percent on the seventeen thousand five hundred balance is what he would pay on an annual basis. Yeah, okay. yeah. So that's you know what seventeen hundred dollars. Just, just say something like that. Yep. And and if I you know seventeen hundred dollars divided by twelve, that's about close to one hundred fifty dollars a month. So I, I'm not sure that the the uh, payment that the information here is right, but if it is right, then you take 450 minus 100, you get 350. You multiply it by 12 months, and you and you divide that figure into the the principal balance. And with your numbers, I get 24 percent. Yeah, and then you just take the square root of that. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, it's, so if I'm looking at that, let's say it's nine percent. If if what the standard is. Um, you might want to refinance, Rob. Michelle from California. She goes, hello. I'm hoping you can help me with some retirement decisions. My mom listens to your radio program all the time and suggests I contact you. I'm currently a teacher in California. I plan to retire August or September of 2020. If I retire August 1st, 2020, I'll make $16 less per month than if I retire in September 1st of 2020. So that's one month, correct? That's one month. Okay. Yes, sixteen bucks. So get sixteen less for the rest of your more, life. Or, yeah, sixteen dollars more for waiting a month. However, okay. Well, well, sixteen times twelve is what now? Oh, I don't know, three hundred something. I kind of like to do annual. Sixteen gonna... times twelve, th- uh, one ninety-two. Okay, two hundred bucks. So it's a difference of two hundred dollars a year. Right. All right. Um, so she lives twenty years. You know, a few thousand bucks. But read on. There's a there's a however. However, if I retire August first, twenty twenty, I will get a two percent cola. Okay, in September twenty twenty one. If I retire September first, twenty twenty, I will not get the two percent cola until September of twenty twenty two. So it's a year. Yeah, year wait for that. Year wait for, for a the cola. Fifty two bucks. Um. I have a feeling that we're going to do a lot of math for like six cents here. I I already have a sense of the answer, but you keep reading. I'm not doing any math. The cows, you know, if I wait one month, I don't get a cola, but I get sixty two extra dollars, and if I lose the fifty, all right, never mind. Oh. <laughs> okay, the CalSTRS retirement will give me a guaranteed two percent cola every year, but it's not compounded. The two percent cola will give me an additional fifty-two dollars per month. Do you think 
I should retire August 1st, 2020 or September 1st, 2020. Also, I have about $30,000 in a Kelster supplemental account. When I retire, I have the option of taking a lump sum or putting it and putting it into an IRA account, or I can get a lifetime annuity of $196 per month for the rest of my life. There's an, also an option to get $923 a month for three years. What do you think is the best option? Thank you so much for any help. Good questions. I'll, I'll tackle the first one. Thank you, Alan. Okay. The, <laughs> I would um, retire on August 1st of 2020 because you will get a $52 bump sooner, right? In other words, you, you get it a full year earlier. I like that better than getting $16 Per month, I, I do. I like that. Better. Well, yeah, ma- the and, math and, makes sense. Well, fifty-two a month. Yeah, times yeah. twelve. Yeah, and and I get that it's not compounded, and the cola would be based upon the sixteen dollars extra. This is where I, I I don't feel like doing all that math for six cents, which is what you were getting at. Right. I would just I would just retire in August. You get fifty-two dollars more per month. That's six hundred plus dollars per year. Done. I think that's I think that's a good deal. Yeah. Um. What do you think? $30,000 in the supplemental account. Roll that thing over into an IRA, or do you take the pension? Well, $196 a month is $23.52 divided into $30,000 is a 7.8%. That's not bad, but there's probably no inflation, or would there be inflation on that? Uh, no. Maybe Kelsters. Kelsters, I'm not sure. If there's no inflation, I would do the lump sum, because um, inflation adjustment, because... Eventually, over time, that's going to be a fairly low figure. Um, if there is, depending upon what the, if there is an inflation rider, you might want to take the payment stream. That's what I say. Yeah, I think to make it really simple, Michelle, take the annuity of one hundred ninety-six dollars a month, take the retired August first, and call it good. <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah, right. And at the end of the day, you could crunch all these numbers and everything else. And it's 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 not going to be a difference. break even of maybe a month of her life expectancy. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Right? Just make it simple. I, I think you make it simple. If you want to retire in August, retire in August. If you want to retire in September, retire in September. I mean, it's up to you. Now, now I will say one caveat: if you don't have any other money in an IRA or savings account, I would take the lump sum because it'll give you some flexibility. Yeah, a little bit more liquidity. Yeah, yeah, yep. So, I don't know. Hopefully that helps. But, yeah, I would just try to keep it as simple as possible. Um, you know, if you want to retire early or in August versus September, go for it, you know. And thank you so much for um, being a teacher in educating our youth. I wonder what school she teaches. Somewhere in California. Isn't your son a teacher? Yes. He's getting out of the profession after four years. It's <laughs> enough already. The sixth graders drove him crazy. <laughs> Alrighty, that's it for us. For Big Al Clopi and I'm Joe Anderson. The show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks to Matt Balderston, CFP, and Brian Perry, CFP, CFA, from Pure Financial Advisors for helping us all become a little more financially wise. If your money question didn't get answered this week, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast because we will answer it in a future episode. Go to yourmoneyyourwealth.com, scroll down, and click Ask Joe and Al on air to send in your question. Your Money, Your Wealth is presented by all those smart fellows you heard on the show today from Pure Financial Advisors. 
For your free two-meeting financial assessment with a certified financial planner, just click the free assessment button at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision.